If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to uh, Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. We're returning to that, uh, this section in the book of Numbers, which we've been working through for the last uh, oh, month or two or, or so. And uh, we finally got through that uh, interesting section on uh, numbers and names and lists. And uh, we jump right into more exciting things like uh, the Mosaic Laws. So hopefully uh, you guys are ready. You got your, you got your spiritual uh, readiness to, uh, to study God's Word. And uh, this is uh, going to be a pretty, uh, pretty interesting chapter. I hope that it will give you a better understanding of, of uh, why some of these, these uh, Mosaic Laws are, are mentioned here in this section. Anyways, Numbers chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. Numbers chapter 5. And uh, I'll begin with just a, a little illustration. You know, many of us had a chance to go hiking, camping, I suppose, this summer. I mean, you go, and uh, if you go hiking or camping in California, you almost inevitably, somewhere along the way, are going to probably be hiking or camping in what's known as bear country. Uh, there are a lot of places where there are bears in the state of California. And uh, if, uh, if you're going to be hiking or uh, camping, really camping, in bear country, there are uh, some certain tips that you would do well to follow. And uh, thankfully, uh, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife has released something called the, the Camper's Guide to Being Bear Aware. Okay, this is really important, right? And so in this guide, it gives you some several safety tips for, uh, for uh, what to do when you're hiking or camping among bears. And uh, uh, tip number one is while hiking... Make noise to avoid a surprise encounter with a bear. Bears don't like, you know, they don't want to be around you either, just as much as you probably don't want to be around them. So if you make a lot of noise, they might know you're coming, and they'll generally avoid you, and they'll they'll walk away. Uh, Secondly, this might not be obvious, but never approach a bear or pick up a bear cub, okay? Never do that. Uh, Thirdly, if you encounter a bear, do not run. Do not run. It's like dogs, you know, they're going to chase you. Instead, face the animal, make noise, try to appear as large as possible. That's, that's true of a lot of animals, actually, uh, wild animals in our neck of the woods. And then, if attacked, fight back. Do not play dead. You know, it's interesting. Actually, it depends on what kind of bear, you know. If it's a brown bear, you're supposed to do something else. But there's, there's, if it's a black bear, which, by the way, there's only uh, native to California, there's only black bears, okay? That's the only species in black, unless it's a wild, or, or well, not ran, a random released brown bear roaming around. But it's black bears. If they're, you know, attacking you, they're, they're about to try to eat you. They think you're food. So you, you got to fight back. Don't play dead, because that brown bears will, might leave you alone, but black bears won't. So, and then finally, if a black bear, if a, a bear attacks a person, immediately call 911, okay? That's, a, that's, a, that's, <laughs> I just say, ow. After, after you've chased away or you moved away, okay, afterwards. I would call 911. Anyways, these are just good safety tips. It's, if, uh, it's wise to observe these and other appropriate guidelines whenever you're hiking or camping in bear country and, and the, because it's the po- there's the possible presence of bears. And the reality is that basically you know this, wild bears and humans do not belong together. That's why there's that fence at the zoo between you and the bears, right? Otherwise, they would just let bears roam around like the peacocks. Bear, peacocks, humans, okay, you can kind of get along, but not bears and not humans. They do not belong together. Now, how much wiser then to observe the appropriate guidelines, the safety tips, when one is camping in, some, in the presence of one that is much more dangerous than a bear, one that is more potentially more destructive than a bear? And I'm talking about the presence of God. God, who is 
much more uh, holy, much more powerful, much more uh, infinite, uh, more is, uh, can destroy you in many more ways than a bear. Uh, holy God and sinful men cannot dwell together. They do not belong together. Holy God and sinful men cannot mix. They do not mix. And today's passage that we're going to look at today, and hopefully that kind of little segues into what I'm trying to get at, the Lord gives us instructions here in Numbers chapter 5 uh, to Israel, particularly really to Israel, for what they were to do when sin enters and defiles the camp of Israel, the people of God. Because they had God dwelling in their midst. And if God dwelt in the midst, they could not allow sin and the defilement of sin to continue while God was in the midst, lest they be destroyed. And so we are looking into this chapter today, where, just to give it a little review where we've been. The book of Numbers describes for us the 40 years of wandering of God's people through the Sinai wilderness from the exodus out of Egypt into before they entered the promised land. And in chapters 1 to 4, we looked at uh, this numbering, the census that God had the first generation take. He had Moses and, his, and the Israelites number their soldiers, number their Levites. And significantly, in the numbering of the soldiers and the numbering of the Levites, God also gave them instructions about how to camp, where they were to camp around uh, in the wilderness, how they were to march in the wilderness. And quite significantly, whether, wherever they marched, Wherever they camped, at the center of their, either their marching, at the center of their camping was the tabernacle of God. And there in the tabernacle of God, which means dwelling place, is where God's presence dwelt among the people of Israel. It is dangerous to live in the presence of God for mankind because of our sin. And because when, we, when sin is, exists in the, in the life of Israel, it defiles the camp, and it is an affront to an holy God who dwells among them. This morning, we're going to look at, for an outline for us, we're going to look at three necessary responses to the defilement of sin that, is going to, that teach God's people of his holiness and our own need for holiness. So we're going to look at that today. And three, there's three uh, necessary responses we're going to learn. They're each kind of marked off for us very clearly in the text. If you, if you get to Numbers, if you're in Numbers 5, you'll see that three times in Numbers chapter 5, there's this phrase that says, it begins, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, we see it in verse 1, we see it in verse 5, we see it in verse 11. So three times we see it, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, so those basically mark off for us the three uh, responses to the defilement of sin, the winds, how God wants Israel to know how are they to respond, what kind of response is needed when sin enters the camp, okay? And so hopefully uh, we will learn from this just as they learned about God's holiness, we're going to learn about God's holiness and our own need for holiness as well. Uh, keep in mind this phrase, uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, it's just, it needs to be constant, we, it's such a, it's a, something that's very common throughout this book, but we sometimes can take it for granted. And, but it helps set our minds straight when we hear that this is God's word. Because that will remember that this is God's word. Because when we read this passage, and if you've already read it, then you know that there are some things in here that are, that are hard, either hard to understand and somewhat hard to accept in our modern, uh, in our modern day society. There, whether it's just some cultural things here that are different from our culture, whether there's the loss of of, uh, of cultural and uh, cultural significance of, of the rituals that we find here, it's, it's sometimes we may scratch, may scratch our heads 
But as those who believe in God, who love God, let's remember that this is what the Lord says. And because God says it, it is his good and perfect will for the people of God. All right? So that's, that's willing. So the first response to the defilement of sin that teach God's people of his holiness and our need for holiness is found in verse 1 to 4, and that is separation from God. Separation from God. That be, and we read this in verse 1 to 4. Let's pick it up, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 to 4, and I'll read all four verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so that they will not defile their camp where I dwell in the midst. The sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. The command here in this passage is found in verse 2. It's pretty clearly given. He just says, command the sons of Israel that they are to send away from the camp. They're to send away from the camp, outside of the camp, where that God had instructed them how to camp, everyone or anyone who is unclean. The circumstances uh, that would require sending away revolve around these laws that uh, Moses had been given earlier in the book of Leviticus. These laws regarding uncleanness or ceremonial uncleanness. They were particularly elaborated by God back in Leviticus chapter 11 to 15. You might want to just write that down, Leviticus 11 to 15, for maybe later on if you want to kind of understand some of these, these ceremonial laws better. You might look back to 11 to 15 to get a better background because that's where they were detailed and elaborated. But God in those chapters had taught Israel about certain foods and certain things and certain circumstances that made an Israelite unclean. Uh, and when we say unclean, we, mean, we primarily mean ceremonially unclean or ritually unclean. And ritual uncleanness then became a symbol of sin. And thus, the unclean Israelite could not participate in the congregational worship until they were cleansed. Oftentimes, uh, the only way, uh, in, after they were cleansed, they would have to offer purification for themselves. They would offer a sacrificial offering that would, uh, as the scripture says, to make atonement for the unclean person. So even in the, in the cleansing, the purification, there's this implication that by using the word atonement, which is our, our, our word, the same word that we use for the covering of sin, that in this picture of moral or ceremonial uncleanness is a picture, it's equated or equivalent with moral uncleanness, sin. In verse 2, we see three particular circumstances that are mentioned where the Israelites had to put people outside or separate them from God's presence. They had to be put outside the camp because that's where, because God dwelt in the camp. And these three cases or circumstances are the case of leprosy, the case of bodily discharge, and the case of death. Uh, I'll just cover each one. I'll just go over, over each one just briefly. Uh, first of all, the, the word leprosy here it can refer, but does not, ju- does not only refer to the disease which we now know as Hansen's disease, a very contagious skin disease where the skin falls, basically uh, the, the, the nerves kind of uh, lose its feeling, and so uh, they, there's a lot, there's decay of skin, and, and it's, it becomes, and they basically have to live outside and, and uh, in basically leper colonies. And while 
this word for leprosy, the Hebrew word for it, can refer to that. It also refers to a variety of skin diseases. Uh, maybe some of us have eczema or, or psoriasis. I have that. Uh, I would be unclean, for instance, according to the Mosaic Law. And you would, because of these, any skin-type diseases that you may have. Leviticus 13 to 14 details, in fact, for us the, the rules regarding the examination, the isolation, and cleansing of the leprous person. Uh, they would, the, the involves priests examining and, and waiting a couple of days, seven days, and then take them and look again and see if they have it. If, if it. if it doesn't grow, if it doesn't expand, then okay, you're clean, and et cetera. And you can, there's a lot of details in there. You can read all about that. By the way, just as an interesting note, just kind of a cool kind of a medical science fact, the Old Testament law is the earliest record of quarantining for disease in human history. And so, you know, you can thank the Old Testament law for our quarantine rules today, right? Because of the wisdom of God. Anyways, uh, bodily discharges, the other case uh, of uncleanness is from bodily discharges. And they're detailed for us in Leviticus chapter 15. Any human discharge of the male or female sexual organs, whether because of disease or the normal course of sexual relations or monthly cycles, basically made one unclean. And you can just think about it. these are some of these things were disease, some of them, but some of these are just normal daily living, but they made one unclean before the Lord. Lastly, concerning death, contact, anyone who came into contact with a dead person became unclean. Later on, in fact, in Numbers chapter 19, verse 14, we learn that everyone who comes into the tent or lives in the tent of one who has died in that tent becomes unclean for a period of seven days. And then they would, after the seven days, they would have to offer uh, purification, uh, do a purification rite. So such were the laws that made one ceremonially unclean before the Lord. In every case... The unclean Israelite would have to be separated from the community because they're unclean outside the camp. And you think about it. This is, this is like, this is a camp of two million people. The tabernacles in the middle, the tent of meeting, they're all the, the, the three tribes of the north, three tribes of the east, three tribes of the south, three tribes of the west, three tribes of the north. And this is two million people spread about, all in their tents and whatnot. And then you, if you're unclean, have to live outside of all of this, outside of the two million people. Where the probably where the latrines were outside the camp, you were it was an isolated area. You were isolated by yourself. You were separated from community. You could not participate in life. You couldn't just kind of go visit. You had to stay outside because of your uncleanness, your ceremonial uncleanness, until the uh, the uncleanness uh, was uh, could be purified or cleansed. So this was a, a very devastating thing to be separated from the out from the camp. The reason for this separation, why would this, was this necessary, is given in verse 3. It says there, so that they will not defile their camp. This word defile is a key word in this chapter. In fact, uh, it's, it's found eight times. Out of the 24 times it's used in Numbers, eight times are right here in this chapter. The word defile means to be or become unclean. And so you can see that it's related to the, the, the laws of uncleanness. To uh, And... So an individual who is unclean, not only, first, first of all, they're unclean and they defile the camp, but they also, we learn in, in the Levitical law, and Mosaic law, that they have the potential to make others ceremonially clean by their contact. Um, 
And that's why you kind of see, if you think, read about the New Testament, you read sometimes when, when the people would, would avoid people who are unclean or uh, considered unclean. The, think about the woman who had the hemorrhage. Think about the lepers, how they were ostracized. They were kept, people kept away from them. Basically, that's, that's people stayed away because they knew if they came in contact with unclean, even dead people, they would become unclean themselves. And this uncleanness defiles the camp, and this becomes significant because, as the later, latter part of verse 3 tells us, the camp is where God dwells in their midst. It's because God dwells in their midst that their ceremonial uncleanness, it cannot remain. They have to dwell outside the camp. And since God is holy, his people must be holy also, as symbolized in this ceremonial, in ceremonial cleanness. In fact, it's a serious thing to, have, to approach God, to dwell among God with ceremonial uncleanness. Leviticus 7.20 uh, tells us, this, gives us this warning to the worshipers of God. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which belong to the Lord, in his uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from his people. In the normal course of, of worship, sometimes peace offerings were made. And in the, when there was peace offerings made, if you offer them in a state of uncleanness, ceremonial uncleanness, you will be cut off from your people. And that's not just saying cut off like, in a, uh, like you'll be outside the camp. That's really a figure of speech for, for put to death. See, uncleanness and God cannot dwell together. Because God is holy. And he wants his people to be holy before him, who worship him. But we might wonder why. Why does God require this separation for these particular laws of uncleanness. When you read the laws of ceremony and cleanness and cleanness, you, you kind of scratch your head. Why, are they, why, why those animals and not these animals? Why those actions and not these actions? Why this particular thing, this particular disease and not this other disease? Why are particularly these things chosen out by God? It, and to us, they may seem arbitrary. They may appear arbitrary, but not with God, okay? God has a purpose in it all. And it's... it's it, it, for instance, and, and particularly with regards to these three particular things, it's, it really isn't clear how having leprosy or a bodily discharge or, or being someone around, uh, someone around someone who has, who has died, that these are somehow moral sins, right? They're not, are they? You look at the New Testament, you're not going to find them to be moral sins. It's not a sin to have leprosy. It's not a sin uh, to, uh, to have bodily discharge. It's not a sin to, to have someone die in your house. But there is a lesson for why God chose these particular things to mark off those things which are ceremonially unclean or those people that are ceremonially unclean. And the lesson is best stated as my, in my studies by a, a, a scholar named by Ian Dugid, Dugid in his commentary on Numbers. And I'll read it for you. And this, uh, it's uh, just a commentary. It really helped me to grasp and understand uh, this passage a little better. He writes this in his commentary on Numbers in the Preaching the Word series. Yet these laws were intended, these ceremonial laws were intended as a mirror to reveal to us the profound depths of our problem as human beings. The significance of this defilement picturing our alienation from God is enormous. Sin is not just about what you do. It is about your very nature as a human being in this world. See, these circumstances remind us, really, these, these particular things that, that, are, that are defile us ceremonial remind us 
are given to us by God remind us of our sin, innate sinful nature. So we all, as human beings, have an in, inherent sin nature that is a result of our first ancestors' fall, which we read about in Genesis 3. And the curse of sin that came, uh, that came upon them led to their inevitable death, and it leads to our inevitable death. And it's passed on, that, in, that's, uh, that uh, sin nature is passed on from, to every generation for everyone born of man. And so that's why we see these ceremony rules. Leprosy, which is a really a visible, very visible decay of our cells, points to basically our inevitable decay of our bodies. All of us are decaying. Did you know that? You may not, you know, when you're young, you may not think about it. You say, oh, I look really handsome and really, you know, magnificent. But the reality is you're dying. From the, you know, you may grow strong for a little bit, but you are dying. All of us are dying. We're heading that way. And, the, and so leprosy as a visible decay of one's sins, of, of the decay, is a reminder to Israel of the actual, real decay of sin in their hearts. Discharges, bodily discharges, these, these involve the, the organs by which the human race procreates. And so it is a constant, it is a, given as a reminder that, when, that, that as we, even as we procreate, that, there is, that we are passing on our, our sinful nature to of the next generation. And what's more, the, the death of those in our, lo- in, in our lives around us speaks then most powerfully of the, pre- of the constant presence of sin because it is sin that death exists in the human race. Every time someone dies, it is a constant reminder that sin is, or that we are under the curse of sin and sin dwells in our, in our world and in our lives. And so therefore, the separation that God requires of Israel from him when they have uncleanness is a visual reminder for them of their inherited sin nature that separates them from God. And there is no cure for this inherent sin nature. Think about leprosy, the laws of leprosy. It's possible you might just have psoriasis and seven days later, you're clean. You can be restored to the camp. Bali discharge, seven days later, you can become restored to the camp. Someone died, seven days later, you can be restored to the camp. Sin nature, there is no one or nothing that can cure you from that. Not a single thing we do. We're helpless against it. You wonder if we're really helpless with it? Try not to sin. Try not to have a sinful thought. Try not to ever have a sinful deed. It will manifest in our lives. It's part of having a sinful nature. It is part of being human. It is normal. And though there is no cure for this on our own, God has provided a cure, right? We know this. We, we preach this. And Jesus, this is why Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins, he came to save us from our sin nature so that we might ultimately one day dwell in the presence of God. And by the way, it is no coincidence that Jesus in the New Testament, he proved his power to forgive sins and to save us from our sin as he cured lepers, as he healed the hemorrhaging woman, as he touched dead people. You know, people touch dead people and they become unclean. But Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, touches people and not only do they become clean, but they rise from the dead. 
That is the power of Jesus, to, shows the power of Jesus to save us from sin. Without Jesus, none of us could be washed clean, and all of us would continue to be separated from him. But this is what we learn here in these first verse, four verses reminds us that these ceremonial laws teach us that our sin separates us from God. And if God dwells in your midst as he does here among Israel, you need to separate from God and re- resolve your, your, your state of ceremonial uncleanness before you come and worship him. There's a second necessary response to the defilement of sin among the people of God, of Israel, and that is found in verses 5 to 10. And that is we learn that there needs to be restitution to God. Restitution to God. Verse 5, we'll read verse 5 to 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind acting unfaithfully against the Lord and that person is guilty, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong and add to it one-fifth of it and give it to him whom he has wronged. But if a man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel which they offer to the priest shall be his. So every man's holy gifts shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. God now in these, in these verses instructs Israel regarding the circumstances not when someone is ceremonially unclean, but when someone actually sins against another, morally sins against another, when they transgress, uh, commit a transgression against another. There are no specifics as to the nature of this transgression. Uh, there's uh, nothing specifically mentioned here. But if you compare these words, these words are very strikingly similar to that which is found in Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. And you can write that down and take a look at it later when you get a chance. And you'll see there that the words are, are there's a lot of similar wording. And there, uh, the similar instructions are given. The, the particular sins there were involved when someone stole or defrauded someone of material possessions or caused them to have a loss in some way due to, to, their, uh, to their actions. But the general statement here uh, leaves basically the application of this law to any time when someone sins against another. And certainly in a people where there are, in a nation where there are two million people, there are going to be lots of times where people sin against one another, okay? And the, it doesn't even take two million people. It takes, uh, oh, about 150 people would probably be enough to sin against one another, okay? That's, so don't be surprised. Uh, I thought there was supposed to be holy people at church. Well, we are supposed to be, but we also got sin. We, 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 we sin against one another. There will be times when we, we sin against one another. Now, know in verse 6 that when someone sins against another, it is described as acting unfaithfully against the Lord. And that stands out for us. That when you sin against another, it's not just sin against someone else, but we're reminded that when we sin against someone else, there's another person that we sin against too. And that was we sin against God. We're, act- we're actually, in fact, it's called sin because it's a violation of God's truth, God's true words. That's why we call it, it's unfaithful, because we're not faithful to God's truth, God's word. So when we, sin against, when we sin against someone else, we sin against always two people, the person we sin against, the, the person, and, the, and God. And so whenever uh, there is going to be restitution, um, when, it's nece- when it's needed, it needs to be 
made right with the person who we sinned against as well as with God. In fact, David in his psalm, Psalm 51 verse 4, when he wrote about his, his contrition over his sin with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, he wrote, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, ultimately, sin is sin because it is a violation of God's word. It's not a violation of, a, of another person's word. And when someone, it's, it's not like I sinned against you because you said, oh, you, hey, don't hit me. You know, and I, then I hit you. Oh, I sinned against you. It's only it's sin because God says, do not, do not murder. And to hit someone in violence and hatred is as guilty as murder. It's because God's a violation of God's word. Therefore, our response needs to involve a, rest, a restoration of a right relation with the person we sinned against and with God. And we see that here. And the first, in the passages, we see that the first step of restoration is confession. Verse 7, he shall confess his sins, which is committed. To confess one's sin is to basically to acknowledge that your actions are, were wrong and were indeed wrong and sinful, that you confess, acknowledge, and ask sin to the one whom you've sinned against. And uh, understandably, this would be towards the person you, you, you uh, offended and sinned against, as well as to God. We think of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, a person who does not confess sin, obviously, is, is someone who's not repentant, and therefore cannot be restored to a right relationship with God. We can treat them as if, and, and, and be gracious to them, and, and, and in, a, in, a, in a just a day-to-day, treat them as if it's not, uh, overlook it, but... In a transactional sense, there is no forgiveness without this, no true forgiveness without confession. Without confession, it must begin with a confession, acknowledgement of sin, acknowledgement of wrong. Secondly, though, following confession, there must be then restitution, which is the main emphasis in this passage. The restitution is to be made uh, both to the person sinned against as well as to God. We see. First of all, restitution. It's been made by giving back what was, what was lost, what was stolen, what was taken. You're supposed to pay back in full, basically, what, what, uh, what, what you had taken or what you had uh, embezzled. And then you're to add to it, according to the law, one-fifth. That is 20% of the value. So 120%. Whenever you, you sin against someone, you stole something from them, you, you wronged them, you, you caused uh, the loss of something, you're to pay them back 120%. And, keep, and this kind of stands out because we think about uh, Zacchaeus when he came to the Lord, right? And what did he do when he, when he said, when he uh, came to the Lord, when people were, were, were make, uh, in his response, Lord, he said, when, if anybody I wrong, I will pay them back 20%. No, he said, I'll pay back fourfold. He was, he was quite generous. He, you see the immensity. So 20% is like the bare minimum. If you, if you really just want to show your contrition, you could even offer more if you wish. But this was 20% is just the bare minimum up, above what you had restored, restituted to the person. Now, of course, there were times this restitution had to be made. And even in the case, the law tells us that when there, the person is somehow no longer alive, perhaps what you took was their life. And that can't be brought back. But there can be a, a certain uh, valuation of that life that, uh, which can be made. And you would try to make that restitution then to a relative. And if a relative of that person, maybe to a spouse, to the children, to parents maybe. But if, that, if he had no relatives, even then restitution towards that person still need to be made by giving it to the Lord for the priests, for the priests to, to, to use. It's not like the Lord really needs it because that's going to be resolved in a little bit. 
but the restitution to the one who was offended must be paid. It must be paid here. And then God is teaching Israel that. If possible, to the, to the victim themselves, to, then to the relatives. If there are no relatives, then it goes to the, to the Lord for the priests. See, those who sin are to make every effort to right their wrong and to go above and beyond in righting their wrong. Lastly, uh, we see that not only is there restitution towards man, but there needs to be restitution towards God. There is still this matter of sin against God that must be settled. There must be a restitution to him, which is why in the text, besides restitution to the wrong party, you notice there a mention of the sacrificial ram of atonement that is needed. See, when one sins against holy God, one incurs two things. One incurs, first of all, guilt because we violated his command. We've broken a law. And so in God's eyes, we are guilty. So we stand guilty before him. But also, we not only incur the guilt, guiltiness before God, but we also incur God's wrath, on the other hand. These, so we, uh, that is God's judgment. And the, there's a wrath that is being reserved for us. Then that wrath is a punishment that, is, that, is, uh, deserve, that sin deserves. This punishment is reflected in separation, but it's going to be ultimately reflected in separation for eternity in conscious punishment in hell for all who do not believe in him. And so to, to resolve one's guilt and one's wrath before God, what is needed is atonement. Atonement. This word, uh, the, and it's, it's, it means to cover. And so one's guilt, one's wrath of, because of our sin is covered in atonement. And this uh, realm of atonement that's mentioned here is actually elaborated elsewhere in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Leviticus, back in Leviticus chapter 6. In atonement, both one's guilt as well as one's, uh, the wrath of God are, are satisfied by the offering of the lamb. Theologically, we call this pro- the, these respective processes expiation and Propitiation. They're both aspects of, of our atonement. This is kind of a silo systematic theology. Expiation, if you uh, it's mentioned once at least in the NASB, refers to the process by which sins are covered, uh, where one's where one's guilt is covered by the payment of a blood sacrifice. So our guilt, when we offer up, when the ram of atonement is offered, God no longer sees our guilt, but because of the payment of the blood sacrifice. He sees us as if we have no guilt, though in reality, we still have that guilt. And secondly, propitiation on the other hand refers to the appeasement of God's wrath. God's wrath is, 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 is appeased in the offering of the, of, the, of the life of the ram in place of the sinner. God had given these instructions, as I mentioned, back in Leviticus 6, 6 to 7. We read these. Let's read that uh, section for us. Then uh, this is talking about when you have a... When you've sinned against someone, you've got to bring a guilt offering. This is called part of the, what's called the guilt offering. Then he shall bring to, pre, to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your evaluation, for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. <clears throat> Every sin 
than an Israelite committed from the greatest to least against someone else necessitated a death. Uh, And so these rounds of atonements, they would need to be made. And uh, we we know this is uh, each each time's uh, rams need to be offered or animal sacrifice need to be made because Hebrews 9.22 explains to us that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. A life had to be paid. Each time there is sin, a life has to be paid. And if it's not our life, then he taught Israel through the offering of, of a lamb or a ram or a goat. The round of atonement offered in one's place would cover one's sin. But you'll notice, or if you just read your Bible, you'll see that that it wasn't just a once-for-all kind of offering. They had to continually offer. It's when they sinned again, they'd have to offer another ram. And they could sin again, they'd have to offer another ram of atonement. They'd have to continually offer because the the Hebrews also tells us in Hebrews 10.4 that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. They were always just a, a temporary covering for our sins. They were all temporary covering of our guilt, a temporary covering and to protect us from God's wrath until the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, came to offer his sin, to offer his self in place for our sin. John wrote in his, in his epistle in 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. See, God requires separation because of sin. That's, that's what sin does. It separates us from God. But it also requires, and it requires a response of restitution. A restitution to the one we sin against, but ultimately a restitution to, to God. And, of course, that restitution, is, ultimate restitution is, been, is from Jesus Christ. Well, this leads us then to a third necessary response to the defilement of sin in the, in the camp of Israel, and that is found in verse 11 to 31. This is the longest section of this chapter, lengthy section of the chapter. And it, we learn here that of the necessary response of intervention from God, intervention from God. See, ultimately, there can be no remedy of, for sin apart from God's own intervention in our lives, in the life of his people. And we learn about this in this unusual uh, ritual for suspected adultery. This is, the, uh, this, is a, this is the only place we find this mentioned. It's not mentioned in Leviticus particularly. So this is unique to, to Numbers, this section. Let me give you the, read the setting in verses 11 to 14. And to keep in mind again uh, that this is the Lord's word. So if we may, we may not, we may respond to it a little kind of with a head scratch, but we've got to trust the Lord. This is his word, and he has his purpose in this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her and is, and is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. You shall not pour oil on it nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder 
of iniquity. And so we see here this, uh, uh, that, this case of suspected adultery. Now, adultery was a serious thing. In the seventh commandment, God had taught Israel that they, were, they shall not commit adultery. It was forbidden to have sexual relations with anyone who was not your spouse was adultery. And, was, and according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, if the penalty for adultery was death for both guilty parties. But the situation here is a, is a little different. It, it, it's when a man suspects his wife has committed adultery, but he has no witness or proof. Now, there, and, and there are many ways that one can be suspected. And usually, you know, if someone's committing adultery, uh, there's going to be signs. You can sometimes see it uh, if you look after the fact. Usually you look after, you, you probably see the signs. You see, oh, man, just how they, they, they spend a lot of time talking to one another, how they spend a lot of time with each other. There's a lot of un, kind of unblocked talk times. You, you find that phone, that cell phone is somehow offered for, you know, X number of hours. Oh, so you could not see where they're at. You know, there's all sorts of things that would be clues to possible adultery apart from actual evidence of adultery and in their days as well as our days. But there's a situation where a man thinks his wife is, suspects his wife of adultery. He is overcome with jealousy for his wife, and a man, has, uh, since his wife is, is under his authority, as we've mentioned several times, it will be mentioned in this passage, he has a, he has a rightful to be, uh, to be jealous for the things that belong to him. But however, the problem is he has no evidence. There's no witness. He didn't catch him in, anyone in the act. So his suspicion could be right if he's reading the, the, the kind of the other uh, circumstantial evidence of uh, circumstances correctly, but he could also be wrong. He, was, he would certainly be, it would be unjust of him if he just said, well, yeah, you're guilty of adultery, so therefore I'm going to stone you, right? He has no evidence. That would be wrong. That would not be right before the Lord. What if he just ignores it? Say, well, you know, ah, I'm just going to ignore it. It's okay, you know. But what if you think about the fact, this is particularly for Israel, the repercussions for doing nothing would be just, if not greater. Because if she is guilty, as this passage posits, then she has, as Scripture says, has defiled herself. That's her word. She has made herself unclean, ceremonially and Morally, too. And if in the, re- in the course of the life she, is, she dwells with her husband, she comes into contact with her husband, she not only, she makes him unclean as well. And you remember what happens to, un- and he might, and he, if he doesn't know it, he's not aware, he's not sure, if he, in his state of, I don't know if unclean, unclean or clean, and he goes and then offers a peace offering to the Lord, what will happen according to Leviticus 7.20? He will be cut off, Right? And so there's a, real, there's a real danger for uncleanness, even if it's suspected, to go on in, in the camp. It had to be somehow resolved in some way. If it's true that she's guilty, then he has to, that appropriate uh, actions need to be taken. If she's not guilty, then, then he needs to know. This is a potential matter of life and death. What is a husband to do in this circumstance? He is to bring it to the Lord. He is to bring it to God is what we see. And that's why verse, uh, verse, 11 talks, verse 15 talks about he will bring his wife to the priest 
the priest who are, serves in the, in the tabernacle, and they will bring an offering as a sign as a, uh, to, to, the, uh, to be offered, a reminder of iniquity. Uh, there's, even, there's all sorts of significance in the fact that there's no oil, there's no, you know, uh, uh, or uh, frankincense put in it. It's simply a reminder of iniquity. Okay, so they are brought to the Lord. Now let's read this, uh, this ritual that is involved in determining whether this wife is guilty or not guilty of, of adultery. Then the priest, verse 16, then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel. And he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose. Um, and that, that even symbolic either of uncleanness uh, and uh, of uncleanness, and, and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, the, which is the grain offering of jealousy, and in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The priest, verse 19, shall have her take an oath, and shall say to the woman, if no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of the curse. And the priest shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. By the Lord's, by the Lord's making, your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, amen, amen. The priest shall then write these curses on a scroll, and he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. Then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse, so that the water which, which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. The priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand. He shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as it's a memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And afterward, he shall make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about, if she has defiled herself and has, been, and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. And her abdomen will swell, and her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy, when a wife, being under the authority of her husband, goes astray and defiles herself. But when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man, and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord, and the priest shall apply all the law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but that woman shall bear her guilt. Well, hopefully if this is your first time reading that, that's a, that a, that a lot to swallow. It's a... Quite different from anything we do today. It's not any part of our normal practice as Christians. And, and it seems odd to us. Um, there are many uh, elements of this ritual involved here, each one carrying various, uh, various meanings. And some of it is lost due to just the, the history of time. But much of it, the big picture is still, uh, is still clear for us. In brief, first of all, there's, there's a ritual that is involved here where this woman is determined to be guilty or innocent before the Lord. And it involves, and it's, it's something that the Lord does because it's brought to him. 
In this brief ritual, we just simply see this process where a man brings his wife, the priest, to the tabernacle. She drinks the water of bitterness after vowing an oath. And then if she's guilty or unclean, the water will bring a curse upon her, preventing her from conceiving children. If she is innocent or clean, then the water will not affect her. She'll be uh, immune to it, and she'll be able to conceive children. Uh, the curse that is here is, is basically a curse of basically childlessness. She would be, become infertile if, if she had been guilty of adultery. And that would be a curse among her people because that was, in particular in that culture, to not be able to have children was, was considered a curse, particularly for those who had such hope in the, in the promise of, of, of women having this blessed role of, being, of those giving, giving life, bearing life, and then giving birth to life in our world. This, was, uh, this particular trial is, is similar in some ways to uh, ancient Near East, what's called by tests by trials. Ancient Near East, they would determine someone whether they were guilty or something, they would give a test by trial. But a lot of the ancient Near East customs, they were much more dangerous. They would be like having them hold on to some piece of fire or, or being dunked in water, we might think of that. And so uh, this, this test is, is benign in comparison Drinking, it is odd, though, to us, and then it, it involves drinking water with a, with a bit of dust from the tabernacle floor. Of course, the dust from the tabernacle floor is, uh, since the tabernacle is holy, the things in the temple are holy as well. So it becomes holy water, essentially. It's holy water. This water is holy, but it's also, uh, there would be the, and, and the, the words of the ink that is used to, to write it on the scroll, that would be washed off into this water. So this ink, and, and from the... Uh, and, and this ink and this dust mixed with this water, though it probably would not taste very good, it would be bitter, um, it is, it would not, if you just think about it, it would not likely produce infertility or miscarriage uh, in, in a woman. Rather, what we see overarching in this home, that, that everything involved here is that it is God who is at work. God is intervening in determining this woman's innocence or guilt. Four times in this passage, the phrase, before the Lord is, is mentioned, before the Lord in verse 16, before the Lord in verse 18, before the Lord in verse 25, before the Lord in verse 30, just that constant repetition of before the Lord, that this is something that is, is well, only the Lord can intervene to, to resolve. It involves him. He is at work here. And at the center of it all is the oath, the oath in, in, in verse 19 and 20, which the woman is to make, the, which the priest has her make. And in this oath, basically, she's recognizing that if I'm guilty, then this water will cause a curse. If I'm not guilty, if I'm innocent, then it will not affect me. I'll be immune to it. But notice that, particularly in verse 21, that it is the Lord is the one. She acknowledges that the Lord is the one who will judge her. The Lord is the one who will curse her, but the Lord is the one who will also protect her. If she is innocent, it's not the water that makes one infertile. It is the Lord who is the one behind it all. It's the Lord who knows, because the Lord who knows all things, who will judge and punish the guilty or preserve the innocent in this in this situation. And that's kind of just the the, the big picture. Thankfully, we don't have to worry about this ritual today. It's not. A, it's part of the Mosaic law. It's for Israel. When, when God physically dwelt in the midst, visibly in the pillar of fire, a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, it, over the mercy seat of the, over the ark that was in the, in the Holy of Holies. God does not dwell among us in that way today. But the underlying principle here of God's intervention is still true. 
that God will judge and discipline those who are guilty of sin. And, when, and it's not just, and keep in mind, he will judge and discipline those who are guilty of sin. Not so much, not to emphasize on those who are outside the church, but within the church, within the people of God. Those who profess faith in God, those who come to church on Sundays and worship God, those who get baptized, those who serve, those who worship, those who sing songs to him, those who participate in the life of the community, God will judge and discipline when you are guilty of sin. You and I, as we get older as Christians, we may get good, especially we get good at hiding sin. And, you know, when, especially teenagers, you get, they start getting better at it. And we may hide our sin from our parents. You may hide your sin from your spouse. You may hide your sin from your friends somehow. But you cannot hide your sin from God. That's what we see. God, who is, sees all will know, and knows all, will judge and discipline you. And that principle is true today. In fact, I said this, that this, this, uh, this, um, this ritual is a little bit odd, but it's really not that odd if you think about it. Because once a month, we actually kind of do the same thing. Once a month, on the first Sunday of every month, you and I participate in the Lord's table, communion, right? And we oftentimes read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, 23 and following, we read about what communion is, according, by, according to the Paul, Apostle Paul's words. But in, and sometimes I read and sometimes I don't, but 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 to 30 has this to say when we come to the Lord's table. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. That when you eat that bread, you drink the cup, you are actually inviting judgment into your life. Judgment from God, an evaluation from God. Not an eternal sense of judgment, okay? But an evaluation. God is, God is evaluating you. For this reason, verse 30, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And what this verse tells us is that basically, God, if you take the communion, you eat the, the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner, that is with unconfessed sin in your life, you are inviting God's judgment to yourself. And God will, if you don't judge the body, your body, right, if you don't judge yourself and, and confess sins and repent of sins before you take those elements, God may do so for you. And if he loves you, he disciplines those he loves. He may cause you sometimes to grow weak and sometimes to grow sick and a number of you will sleep, that is, die. Now, I want to make sure that you know that not everybody who, who is weak or sick or dies is because, well, they, oh, they just took communion. Oh, man, they must have sin in their life. It's not necessarily that. But it could happen. That's what God's word says. It's really just, and then when we, take, when we participate in the, in the worship of God with uncleanness, with sin in our lives, God who loves us, will judge. He will discipline. And he'll bring about, you know, maybe if the sin is so heinous, he will just take your life so you will not continue to dishonor his name. Maybe he'll give you, show mercy and just make you sick or weak so that will be enough for you to repent. That's why in James 5, when, when, you, when you're caught up in weakness or sick, you find you're to call the elders of the church. Why the elders? So they pray for you. And then, and if you, if you, and involved in that is, is confession of sin. Because sin is what might, may be the cause of your sickness. That's why they're praying. They lead you through repentance. It's not just that elders have some magic power. We don't. We just come along and say, hey, is there you know, sin in your life? Please don't be offended when we do that. Okay? 
So when you invite your elders to pray for you because you're sick, they may just ask you, was there sin in your life? Well, hopefully not the first thing. We'll say, I'll pray for you. You know, we can understand this as New Testament saints, right? That God, God loves his people, and he is jealous for his people, and therefore he will judge and discipline those of his people that, are, that worship, continue to worship him with sin in their lives, with defilement of sin. But we might wonder, why, why does this law, why does this particular law here in Numbers 5 focus on adultery? Why not other suspicions of sin? Maybe, what if I suspect someone's stealing from me? What if I suspect someone is, is, is uh, slandering behind me behind my back? What if I suspect someone is, you know, is, is, uh, is basically doing something uh, that is unrighteous or, or uh, hurting, is, you know, is lying about me? Well, this particular sin is used here by God, and it's, and it's, it's a pretty lengthy section, so you got to, there's some significance to this. I think we look at the rest of, New, of the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, really, the whole Bible, we see that this particular sin, adultery, is, in fact, it's mentioned in verse 12 and verse 27 of chapter 5, that it's, it is an act of unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness to a covenant relationship. And marriage is a, is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and it is all throughout Scripture used as a, as a picture, an image, and description of the covenant relationship between God and his people. And so whenever God and his people are, they, when God's people stray and they worship other gods, they worship other, other, other religions, they, it is oftentimes described by God as adultery, though it is technically the sin of idolatry. And so God, through this ritual and the seriousness in which he, he, he emphasized on the suspicions even of, of, uh, of um, unfaithfulness, was to teach them that God would see and intervene when they sin and forsake him. Just as he sees the, the, the truth about a, a wife's unfaithfulness or not, he sees the heart of Israel, the worshipers of Israel, even though they may worship God in the temple, but secretly in their tents, they're worshiping Ashtar, they're worshiping Baal, they're having their own little uh, various idols that they have in their home. They think nobody else sees, but when they, and then they go and participate in the life of the community. But God sees. God knows when his people are unfaithful, and God will discipline them. We see that through all throughout history of Israel when he punishes them because of the unfaithfulness. And when followers of Christ today are unfaithful, when we love other things more than God, we can be sure that the Lord will discipline us because he is a jealous God. He will intervene in our lives to convict us of a sin and bring us to repentance. And how will he not? Since he has already intervened in the greatest way possible for us when he sent us his son to die in our place. Well, we see then these three responses that Israel was to respond whenever there was defilement of sin in their, in their camp. Separation, restitution, and God's intervention. We've seen in Numbers chapter 5 that the defilement of sin separates us from God. And it requires from, from us restitution to God, a payment back to God. Or by the way, a restitution none of us could ever make or we'd ever be could, could ever make in our, on our own. And what we all need is intervention from God, which he did by sending his son to make atonement for our sins and reconciled us to God. And although the Lord, we don't have to worry that 
You know, some of you are probably thinking right now, right now, right here, say, hey, I've got unconfessed sin in my life. God hasn't struck me down right now yet. Because thankfully, God does not dwell in our midst as he did, as he did among Israel when they wandered around the wilderness. It was a physical manifestation of God's presence. But make no mistake, God does dwell in our midst still. Pastors like St. Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 to 18 tell us, this, tell us this very much. For we are the temple of the living God. The church is the temple. You and I are temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons, sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. See, we are to be a holy people. We who are the people are to be holy, separate from the world, separate from the sinful practices, sinful partnerships with the world. We are to pray, just as Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name. We must let that first and foremost live out in our own lives that we would strive to treat God as holy by being holy people in return. We cannot do it on our own. In our own strength, we fail. And we've all been there. Especially as young Christians, you know, how hard you try to be holy, and then you realize, how come I can't be holy, perfect? Yeah, you can't. You need someone discipling you, but you cannot. That's why you need God's grace. That's why Jesus Christ died for you. What you need is God's grace. And when you try to live holy, strive to live holy in his power, but you will fail at times, and in those times live in his grace. There is God's grace for you. But nevertheless, let us strive to live in holiness. Three questions for us to strive in, as we strive in our striving for holiness. And hopefully they'll just challenge you and make, uh, kind of help you to think through your own life. Is there any uncleanness, sin that hinders you from drawing near to God? Just think about it. You can just kind of think about it. Is there anything keeping you from God? Sin keeps you from God. If you're probably wondering, why do I feel dry? Why do I feel so far away from God? Think about it. It's probably sin in your life that you're not confessing. Secondly, are you resting, trusting in God's provision for your atonement? This is a very important question. You know, you may have said you believe in Jesus, but are you constantly resting and trusting God's provision for your atonement for your sins? I know so many of you people, and I myself included, we just beat ourselves up because of our sin, right? Anybody there? No? Just me? Okay. You feel bad? I'm a pastor. How could I sin in that way? How could I sin against my children? How could I sin against my wife? How can I sin against God? And you want to beat yourself up, right? Right? You may think, but that's where you need to rest your, uh, your trust and that you are, your sins are forgiven, not because of how you live your life. Your sins are forgiven because of Christ, because he died for you. He died in your place. He loved you and laid himself down so that for all, from here on out, from, for to, in your past and to your future, well, the sins that you commit are all paid for and all washed and all covered. Your guilt is, 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 does not appear before God anymore. His wrath is not reserved for you anymore. Your wrath for yourself, well, maybe a little bit is, is, is you know, okay to inspire you, but know that God does not have wrath for you. Know that God does not have, see you with guilt he sees Christ in his perfect righteousness. Rest in that. Trust in that. A provision for your atonement. That's another aspect of the gospel that we all need to know. 
Thirdly, is there any hidden sin that needs God's intervention? A lot of times we, 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 we have sin, and, uh, you know, probably the most common sin today uh, out there is pornography. It's so hidden. It's just privacy in your home. You know, if there's hidden sin in your life, you need God's intervention. You need, you need help. Uh, invite someone else to share with, you know, and um, to, to share your struggle with so that we can shine God's light into that. Because God will judge and discipline. He will, he, will bring a, he will bring discipline to your life to bring you back to him. He will, you cannot hide it forever. God will know. And so these are questions, hopefully they're challenging you to you as you think about God's holiness and our need for holiness. But thank God we have Jesus Christ. Thank God we have Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. May, may you, Lord, cause us to continually remember that you are a holy God and that we are your temple. And Lord, we thank you for your mercy and that you do not strike us down dead when we sin before you. But Father, we do thank you that you have given us and provided for us your son in whom has made the, made the way pause for us to be restored to you to have the hope to have you dwell with, with us. Thank you for that in him we have restitution and, and atonement for our sins, a covering for our sin, permanent covering for our sins. And we thank you, Lord, that you have interviewed in him for what we could not do, never could do, never ever will do accomplish, you have accomplished and finished it in Jesus on the cross. Lord, help us to rest in this gospel truth. Help us to strive for holiness. Lord, may we encourage one another towards this goal until you call us home. But Lord, until then, we rest in Christ. We thank you for the salvation of our great Savior in here and uh, this, that is provided by our great Savior. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.